This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good morning, a very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Alan Little, I'm a BBC reporter. I was delighted to be given the chance to sit on this stage with Pat Barker, uh, a writer whom I've admired for more than 20 years, since she first tackled the subject of the First World War and her landmark regeneration trilogy, which I'm sure many of you have read. Pat has returned to the period of the First World War uh, in this new book, uh, Toby's Room, which is a, a wonderful achievement. I read it on holiday a couple of weeks ago and uh, read it like many of the reviewers in uh, simply two, two sittings. Never, never start a Pat Barker book if you've only got a couple of hours. <laughs> Wait till you've got a whole day because you immerse yourself in this and, uh, and it's, it's a wonderful achievement. I'm going to ask uh, Pat a quick question and I'm going to ask her to read, uh, 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 to, to introduce and read to us. Uh, a very important uh, episode in this book. But Pat, let me first of all ask you, um, why did you return after all these years to the First World War? Well, I wrote Double Vision, uh, which is about uh, a war correspondent and um, uh, a war photographer. And frankly, it's not my best book. But in it, I was exploring uh, um, uh, issues that I thought needed to be explored about the representation of war and above all, uh, to what extent do images of war always have to be censored? And uh, I, I knew I hadn't particularly got to grips with what I was trying to write about. And then, of course, I remembered the greatest, most famous war images of all time, uh, or of the modern era, uh, Paul Nash, Paul Nash's landscapes, um, Christopher Nevinson's machine men, and I, I thought, now I'm going to have another go. I'm going to go back to what I know, and I'm going to tackle the same themes, but uh, against the backdrop of a historical period, where very often when you write about history, people are more open-minded about the issues than they are when you're writing about modern conflicts. But you're actually writing about modern conflicts as well, aren't you? Oh, yes. I don't think you could ever write pure history purely about the differences between then and now, because nobody would be able to identify with the people. So I think you're always writing um, through the filter of our modern preoccupations. Uh, I want to ask you now to read the, the hmm. passage that you've chosen, but first of all, for those who haven't yet read the book, can you just uh, tell us something about the, the main characters in this scene? Uh, yes, uh, it's uh, Kit Neville and Paul Tarrant, uh, they're friends, uh, but some, Paul sometimes feel, feels they're friends in inverted commas because they're both painters uh, and they're, they're rivals as painters and Kit Neville doesn't take any prisoners. But also, to complicate matters, uh, they have been in love with the same girl at one time. And there is now another girl on the scene and once again they are becoming rivals. They actually have a very prickly relationship, don't they? Oh, they do, an extremely prickly relationship, <laughs> as we will see. They're letting me out, Neville's note had said. Just for one evening, but it's a start. There's nobody I'd rather spend my first evening of freedom with than you, my dear fellow, 
so if you're agreeable, I could pick you up from the Slade this Thursday at half past six. I believe you still work office hours. Of course, if you'd prefer not to be seen with me, I shall quite understand. Since when had he been Neville's dear fellow? Neville must have many friends closer than Paul whom he could have arranged to meet. But there again, perhaps not. His capacity for offending people was legendary, and he'd chosen to have no visitors. Refusing to be niggled by that sly dig about office hours, Paul finished work precisely at six, cleaned himself up, and changed into the uniform he'd brought with him. Even with a stick and a limp, it wasn't wise to be seen on the streets in civilian dress. He wasn't much looking forward to the evening, but it was the kind, the decent thing, to keep Neville company on his first venture into London. They'd find some back room in a pub somewhere and talk, he supposed, about painting. Now that Neville had been commissioned as a war artist, painting was once again a safe topic. And then, duty done, he could pour Neville onto the Sidcup train and go home. Neville was waiting near the reception desk. He was not in uniform, which surprised Paul a little, until he reflected that Neville had his face to vouch for him. Standing there in the shadows like that, he became a figure of menace. Paul wished he would move, look round, say something, and yet, as Neville turned towards him, he had to brace himself for his second sight of that face. Nothing. That was the first impression. A featureless, silvery oval hovering in the half-darkness, as if a deranged, wandering moon had somehow got inside the building. Then he understood. Neville was wearing a mask. My God. Yes, my son. Neville came across and shook hands. Oh, come on, Tarrant. How often do you say my God and get an answer? I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's a bit of a shock. Paul was still struggling to take it in. The mask was beautifully made. Expressionless, of course, except for a faint, archaic smile. It reminded him of a kouros, except that they had no individuality, and this most definitely had, though it wasn't a portrait of Neville as he'd once been. I borrowed it, Neville said. It's not mine. Well, I'm impressed. So you should be. It's an original Ward Muir. He might have been explaining the provenance of some recently acquired painting. Chap it belongs to, well, <laughs> no face at all, basically. I don't think even Gillies could do much for him. So off he went to the Tin Noses department, the last resort. It's beautiful. Bloody should be, it's Rupert Brooke. <laughs> God, yes, so it was. Now he'd been told, it was obvious. Very popular, apparently, the Rupert Brooke. <laughs> but why? Why would you want to look like somebody else? Neville shrugged. Why not? Why not aim for something better? You've got to admit he was absolutely stunning. I'm afraid I never met him. <laughs> no, I suppose not. It was hard to relate to Neville wearing that thing, and though it hid the ruin of the face, it also directed the imagination towards it. Paul struggled to find something sufficiently neutral to say. Is it comfortable? Not really. In fact, if you had to wear it all the time, it would be absolutely bloody intolerable. The eye holes turned towards him. And if you try to see it from a woman's point of view, what would be the point of kissing this? 
too raw, too intimate? I, I don't know. No bloody point at all. Better the gargoyle underneath. Well, I'd have thought so, wouldn't you? His voice was shaking with anger and pain. Suddenly, Paul realized that behind the mask, anything was possible. Neville could say, and quite possibly do, anything. Immediately, Paul's nervousness about the evening increased. He compensated by trying to get the conversation back onto more mundane topics. How do you drink through it? Straw. Neville produced one from his inside pocket. Bet you've never drunk whiskey through a straw, have you? No, I don't believe I have. They walked to the Rose and Crown and sat in the back room, attracting sidelong glances, though Neville kept his hat on and pulled the scarf well up to his chin. As he drank, snuffles and slobbering came from behind the mask, but it certainly didn't impede his intake. Whiskey was running up the straw like lemonade on a hot day. Hey, take it easy. We've got all night. I have absolutely no bloody fucking intention whatsoever of taking it easy. A brass monkey would drink if it had my life. A moment later, though, he settled back into his chair and looked around the room. Nobody returned his gaze. I've been meaning to congratulate you, Paul said. <laughs> what on, exactly? Becoming a war artist. Been one for years, didn't need a bloody government committee to... Will you be able to paint? Not if I stay in that dump, no. I could if they let me out. Another brooding silence. Paul said quickly, Eleanor says she went to see you. So I believe. Mother said she'd been, but I don't remember. Probably talked a whole load of bloody rubbish. Paul felt his tension behind the mask. She, she said you were talking about something precious, but she couldn't make out what it was. Precious? He shook his head. Oh, wait a minute, yes, the Padre was precious. I mean, his name was precious. He certainly wasn't. Perfectly dreadful little man. Toby hated him, and for once, Toby was right. Why? Why did he hate him? Oh, I don't know. They kept having stupid arguments about, well, well one of the things was books. We had a stock of books we used to hand out to the men. You know, penny dreadful, shilling shockers, that kind of thing. Nothing that would raise an eyebrow, really. But, oh, my God, you should have heard Precious on the subject. You'd have thought we were passing around dirty postcards. And then, oh, yes, and then there was syphilis, the bad disorder, Precious insisted on calling it. He thought the solution was for the men to find Jesus, tie a knot in it, basically. Toby thought the answer was this stuff you were supposed to paint on your willy if you'd been a naughty boy. Dyed it bright blue. He put his glass down. Not much of a choice, really, is it? Bible thumping or a blue dick. <laughs> and Toby couldn't leave it alone. Toby couldn't leave anything alone. He was looking towards the bar as he spoke. Paul drained his glass. Do you want another or shall we move on? Move on, for God's sake. Let's get out of here. Standing up, Neville knocked over a chair and set it clumsily to rights. Paul heard him breathing heavily as they walked across the room. As they reached the door, an old man with musculent blue eyes stood up and solemnly shook Neville's hand. As if this had been a prearranged signal, a ripple of applause spread around the room. Christ, that was embarrassing, Neville said, as the door swung shut behind them. People want to show their respect, that's all. No, they don't. They want us out of sight. You should hear Gillies on the subject and Tonks. 
When they were in Aldershot, there used to be a weekly parade. Patients in uniform, brass band, flags, whole bloody works. It was supposed to give a grateful nation the chance to say thank you. Three bars of Tipperary and the streets were empty. They'd set off to walk, but now, unexpectedly, Neville veered out into the road and hailed a cab. Where are we going? Paul asked. The Café Royal. Is that a... But Neville was already inside the cab. Paul followed him in and gave the address. A sharp intake of breath from the driver as he turned and saw the mask. But his response was calm, if unpredictable. I had him in my cab once. Who? Neville asked. Rupert Brooke. <laughs> he was good, him. There is some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. Yes, that would be the bit with my nose underneath it. <laughs> Just fucking drive, will you? Conversation was at an end. Shoulders stiff with, with offence, the driver turned his attention to the road ahead. Christ, Neville said. If there's one thing I hate, it's cab drivers who think they have to be characters. Yes, but let's face it, Neville. There aren't many people you don't hate. Paul leaned back and closed his eyes. He dreaded walking into the Café Royal with Neville in this state, but there seemed to be no chance of deflecting him. Outside the Café Royal, Neville insisted on paying the fare, but ended by scattering coins all over the pavement. An elderly man who bent down to help got the mask thrust full into his face and hurried away with a final incredulous glance over his shoulder. I'll get it, Paul said, reaching for his wallet. As he paid, he saw Neville bracing himself to enter the building. It moved him, that small private act of courage. He reached out and touched Neville's shoulder. You'll be all right, you know. They're all friends. I have no friends. Outside the domino room, Neville hung back. It was Paul who pushed open the door and walked in. Treading on his heels, Neville stumbled and almost fell. Paul found a table near the entrance and ordered whiskies but it was a minute or two before he felt able to look around. Once again, they were the centre of attention, though once again, nobody openly stared. Despite Neville's frequent self-pitying assertions that he was finished as an artist, overlooked, forgotten, yesterday's man, his return to London had been reported in all the papers, though nothing had been said about the nature or severity of his wounds. But he was known to be at Queen's Hospital, so the injuries had to be facial. The rumours had begun almost at once. Some people said he was so hideously disfigured his own mother had run screaming from the room. Others that his brain was affected too, that he was either mad or a cabbage. And now here he was, or here somebody was. Neville's thick-set figure and truculent bearing were almost enough to identify him, but not quite. People glanced at the mask and quickly away. Was it him? It had to be, but nobody was confident enough to come forward and speak to him. The mask didn't help. Rupert Brooke's face, gazing around a room where he'd so often lauded it in the flesh. Enough to give you the shivers. Neville was on his fifth whiskey. Paul expected him to become even more aggressive, but instead he sank into a morose stupor, peering through the slits in the mask at scenes of former triumph. Two or three years ago, he'd have walked into this room as if he owned it. Paul remembered meeting him here, Neville, the famous war artist. 
whose latest exhibition was on everybody's lips, and he felt a flicker of shameful pleasure at the reversal of their fortunes, a mean, filthy emotion, quickly suppressed. The silence had gone on too long. He tried to find a topic of conversation that would rouse Neville from his stupor, but nothing worked. He either couldn't or wouldn't speak. Instead, he sat staring round the room, the silver face of the dead poet turning from group to group. Gradually, uncertainly, a few people began to respond, raising their glasses, smiling, ghost smiles, at what must have seemed to most of them a ghost. Suddenly, Paul realised they weren't sure Neville, or whoever it was behind the masks, could see them. Nothing was visible behind the slits in the mask, and he'd stumbled when he first came into the room. A large group at a nearby table fell silent for a time, but then gradually the conversation started up again. They were talking about an exhibition that included three of Paul's paintings. Some at least of the group must have recognised him, but nobody spoke. The cordon sanitaire around Neville obviously included him too. They were still, covertly, the focus for every eye in the room. The mask went on smiling its faint, archaic smile. Behind it, an eye like a dying sun sank beneath the rim of a shattered cheekbone. The hole where the nose had been gaped wide, and the mouth endlessly, tirelessly snarled. Neville was clenching and unclenching his fists. Bastards, I'll bury the whole fucking lot of them. Calm down. Why? Why should I calm down? Two years ago, they were queuing up to lick my ass, and now look at them. They don't know what to say, that's all. He didn't know what to say. More important, he didn't know what to do, how to get them out of this situation. He turned to Neville. Look, why don't we... Suddenly, without any warning, Neville began to roar, the bellow of a wounded bull with the full force of his lungs behind it. Paul tried to grab his arm, but he was too late. Neville was on his feet. He waited till every eye in the room was fixed on him, and then he took off the mask. One or two people cried out. Others were blank with shock. Instinctively, Paul stepped in front of Neville, though whether to shield him from their reactions or them from the sight of him, he didn't know. He thought nothing could have been more terrible than that roaring, but then Neville started to cry, a baby's square-mouthed wail of abandonment and loss. Paul put an arm round his shoulders and managed to turn him towards the door. Come on, he kept saying, it's all right, come on, the way he would have spoken to a distraught child or a frightened horse. Neville let himself be led from the room. By the time they reached the pavement, he'd stopped crying, though his chest still shook. And then, to Paul's utter bewilderment, he started to laugh. <laughs> Did you see their faces? Oh, my God! Paul didn't know how to respond to this. He knew, if he knew anything at all, he knew this, that every part of Neville's anger and distress had been genuine. The brooding, the resentment, the rage, the look at me of the abandoned child or the slighted artist, the tears, the sobbing, it had all been real. Surely it had. And yet Neville's laughter now seemed to deny that. He realised Neville was already hard at work, reshaping the events of the evening, carving out for himself, if only in retrospect, a position of authority and control. That was Neville all over, a fat, moist silkworm, 
perpetually spinning the legend of himself. And it worked. It worked. Paul had already started to edit his own memories of the evening. Perhaps Neville had always intended that dramatic sweeping aside with the mask. Perhaps he'd got drunk in order to be able to do it. Perhaps. But none of it justified his behaviour. Well, that was pretty grim, Paul said tight-lipped. My dear fellow, blame the mask. This is a mask of known bad character. Chap who owns it goes on the underground, waits till there's a few girls sitting nearby, and then takes it off. Comes back to the ward, holds up his hand. How many screamed? How many fainted? There aren't many faints, but he has had two. He seemed to sense Paul's disapproval. Oh, for God's sake, Tarrant, it's a game. It's a terrible game. You get your laughs where you can. He walked on a few steps, turned back. Do you know, Tarrant, you're no fun at all tonight. Sorry about that. I'm making the most of it. I won't be able to wear it after the next operation. Well, count me out next time. Paul could feel Neville's anger, which up to now had been directed impartially at everybody they met, narrowing to a point and focusing on him. You're going out with Catherine, aren't you? He said. No. What's the point of denying it? Mother told me, and Catherine told her. We had supper once and went to a concert. Mmm. What does mmm mean? Eleanor, then Catherine. Yes. My girlfriend's first, then yours. You seem to have some sort of morbid desire to slide in on my leavings. This was so offensive and in so many different ways that Paul was speechless. Neville had not had an affair with Eleanor. Catherine, well, yes, possibly, he didn't know. But Eleanor, definitely not. He said evenly, this is where I punch you on the nose, isn't it? Oops, sorry, haven't got one. The words opened a gap between them that it seemed nothing could ever fill. And yet a second later, Neville laughed and threw a heavy arm across Paul's shoulder. You know I don't mean it. No, I don't know. We should be friends. Well, you don't make it easy. I know, he patted Paul awkwardly on the arm. Come on, I'd better be getting back. If I'm late, they mightn't let me out again. Please, God. A few yards further on, Neville succeeded in flagging down a cab. The driver was mercifully free of poetic associations, and so they travelled to Charing Cross in virtual silence. As the train to Sidcup left, Paul stood on the platform, watching its blue-tinged lights disappearing into the darkness. After it had gone, he sat on one of the benches, massaging the muscles of his injured leg. Memories of the evening, the mask, the Café Royal, the shocked faces turning towards them, buzzed around his head until he was too exhausted to think anymore. Then he simply sat, staring at the humming lines, blank and motionless, as if a piece had been cut out of his brain. And that is why you have to go and get this book and read it if you haven't already. Um, Pat, that raises all sorts of things that I want to ask you about. But let's deal with the character of Kit Neville first. Even before he goes to the war, even before he gets injured, even before the war starts, he's not a nice guy. He's not somebody that the reader likes. And yet you manage to create this character who we don't really like. We wouldn't really want him as our friend. 
but we end up caring very passionately about him as a, as a character. Is that something you deliberately set out to do? Because it certainly happens. It comes off the page like that. Mm -hmm. well, I'm pleased it's happened anyway. I mean, I, I like Kit Neville. He's great fun to write about. Uh, uh, and very often in a novel, the people who are fun to write about are not the people you'd want to go and have a drink with. You certainly wouldn't want to go and have a drink with Kurt Neville, uh, even, be, even before. He is, I suppose he is enormously self-centered. Uh, he comes from a very privileged background compared with Paul Tarrant, and yet he is absolutely rotten with self-pity. But one of the endearing things with, about Kit in this book is that... Um, having pitied himself from his, about his very privileged Hampstead upbringing, uh, he has no self-pity at all when he sustains these terrible uh, facial injuries. Uh, somehow it brings out a hardness in him, uh, and a stoicism that wasn't there before. So you see him changing. And I think if you, if you uh, identify with what the character is trying to achieve, in this case, to get some kind of life back, um, and you can see him changing in response to the challenges, I think then you are prepared to go along with him. Let's talk a bit uh, in a minute about the, the something your book highlights is, is that there was a sp hospital specially um, uh, treating mm. men who came back with facial wounds, with facial yes, injuries, yeah. hideously disfigured. Yeah. Uh, and yet a thousand beds. A yeah, thousand uh, beds. Yes, yes. And these people had to rebuild some kind of life when people simply didn't want to look at them in the street, and it raises the question I think that, that I deal with quite a lot in, in, in my work, especially when I came, come home from reporting wars, which is the, the nexus between the experience of the soldiers who place themselves in harm's way, mm. volunteer to do so, and our responsibility to them as a society when they come back, not dead, but in pieces. Yeah. Uh, there was a, a, a great friend of mine lost a leg in, in uh, Iraq when he stood on a landmine. And after he recovered, he had three prosthetic limbs, one for walking, one for running, and one for swimming. And he took his little boy, four-year-old son, to a swimming pool in London. And as, on his way out, one of the swimming pool attendants said, we, we would appreciate it if you didn't come back, sir, because your oh. prosthetic leg distresses the other children. Oh, dear. Now, so this is something we're still living with. It is very, it is very much so. We, we, we sort of think we've moved on, but in fact we haven't. Uh, at this hospital, one of the attendant convalescent homes uh, was asked by the neighbours to keep the men inside because it was too distressing. And on the, on the walk up to the hospital, some of the benches were painted blue. And that meant if you saw the blue paint, you realised that the person sitting on it was likely to be disfigured so you could cross, <laughs> cross the road and you know, not have to look at them too closely. We were talking before, before the event started about uh, our attitude to this, and we seem very comfortable as a society in ritualizing loss, in ritualizing grief, even uh, nearly 100 years after the, the loss has occurred. We seem comfortable with what we call the glorious dead. We like the glorious dead. Yes. We don't bump into the glorious dead in Tesco's. No. The discomfort comes with those who come back with Hideous yes, injuries. Yes. I mean, I think it was you know, exactly the same in the First World War, and I think in every war. There are the glorious dead, uh, and there are the slightly wounded who are smiling and waving, and anything in between, you know, you've, you've had it, basically. Uh, though at the moment, there is in the Imperial War Museum, there is a, 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 a nude um, portrait of a man with an amputated leg. But I think that is the very brave of him to do that. 
it, it's difficult, you see, to see how it can be different because people who sustain dreadful injuries do need privacy to get their lives back together again. Their families need privacy. And, and God knows there are some very weird people out there, who, you know, the ones who go right to the back at the pawn shop and like amputations. Um, and you, know, you, you want to shield the people, and yet at the same time, it's very easy for a politician to say the price is worth paying when people are not allowed to see the price. And that is the situation we are all in. The censorship has not stopped. Tell us about this, the, one of the figures in the book, um, uh, Henry Tonks, who's the... We've, we meet him, first of all, in this book as a, as a tutor at the Slade Art School before the war starts. But he comes back much more significantly later in the book as... Uh, well, as what? Because he's at this thousand-bed hospital where men have hideously disfigured faces. What's he doing there? Uh, he's working as a... Uh, well, it's, it's, it's strange what he's doing there, actually. He trained for initially as a surgeon, but by the time the war broke out, he was too rusty as a surgeon to be able to practice surgery. Um, so he became a medical illustrator, you might say. But, I mean, he does pen and ink sketches uh, uh, before, during, and after the operations, and they supplement the photographs of the men that were taken. But he also did a series of pastoral portraits uh, of the men. There are about 71, but others are still being discovered. And these occupy a very... Uh, shady ground between actual art, because they are fully realized portraits. You, you feel you know the sitter, and yet at the same time, the wound is uh, remorselessly delineated. And as you're looking at them, you're all the time moving between the face, especially the eyes, which are usually intact, not always, and the wound. And the question in your mind, of course, is how does this particular man live with this, what has been done to him? And they are uh, remarkable pieces of work. Tonks thought they were the best things he'd ever done, and yet he also thought that they should never be shown. Because Tonks, uh, for those who don't know, like Dr. Rivers, who worked at Craig Lockett Hospital here in the, uh, during the First World War, he's a real character from here. Oh, yes, he is. He's very definitely a real character. Very, uh, he, he was the tutor of uh, one of the most remarkable generations of, of young English painters. They didn't all like him. And he could be very acerbic and sarcastic. Uh, um, but he was also very kind and generous. He spent a lot of time on the weaker students as well. He was, uh, he's remembered for his waspishness. But uh, that wasn't the whole story about him by any means. Yeah, he's a very waspish, uh, very unsympathetic character at the beginning of the book when he's yeah. teaching. But when he comes back later during the war and he's dealing with these hideously disfigured men, mm. he's very sympathetic, isn't he? Yes, he is. He's, he's very sympathetic to the men themselves, I think. And apparently he'd always done this, even as a junior doctor in the hospital. He would draw the patients and he would also draw the uh, cadavers in the dissecting room. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, for him, of course, the, the essence of uh, life drawing was anatomy. He was absolutely passionate about anatomy, and he tried to convey that to his students. Sometimes he succeeded, sometimes he didn't. While we're on this subject, again, Pat and I were talking just before the event started, and uh, we were talking about this, this question of our collective responsibility as a society to those who go to war and come back, uh, sometimes with two or three limbs missing. And I was telling Pat a story about, uh, there was an episode a few years ago, some of you might remember it, in which 
a serviceman's charity bought a seven-bedroom mansion in Surrey, which they wanted to turn into a home from home for wounded servicemen's families, mm. very near Headley Court in Surrey, the hospital that treats multiple amputees. And they had to apply for planning permission to, and it was in a very leafy stockbrokery type area of Surrey. And the neighbors complained and got up a petition to try to prevent the planning permission mm. uh, for this house to be used in this way because they said it would affect the value of their properties. And it became a kind of morality tale for our times. Mm. And I reported this for the BBC, and I, I'm afraid I probably let my impartiality slip <laughs> and showed my... But there was a great petition across the country nationwide, and it was all overturned, and the council did the right thing in the end. But after I'd done my piece for the 10 o'clock news that night, the same friend who lost his leg in Iraq texted me and said, I hope they all lose a limb in a, in a freak stockbroking accident. <laughs> <laughs> Which is... Uh, mm. uh, so we live with these. This is, a, yeah. this is a story about us today as well as being set in, Absolutely. The, in the First I, World I, War. I'm very, very much aware uh, of and that. And it touched me yeah. very powerfully uh, because it spoke to my own experience. Let's talk briefly before we open it up to the audience about the two, who we might call them the two main characters of the book, Toby, who's dead for most of the book, yes. and, his, and his sister, Eleanor. It's not giving too much away of the plot to say that something very strange and unusual happens to them in the, in the first yes, chapter. Yes. Why did, why, tell us what that is and why you put it in there at the start. Um, I didn't want, I suppose, to write a straightforward sequel. So one of the things I've done is that this book, uh, although it's the same characters in operation, this book actually starts before uh, Life Class. And uh, I, I say that, so that this book book ends live class. So as you just say, starts life earlier class, and goes on, goes on later. This is both a prequel and a sequel to yes, live class. Yes, yeah, it, it's it's both. And I, I was interested in what would happen to the reader's perceptions, particularly. You don't have to have read the first book, by the way. It's completely self-contained. But I, I was interested in looking back at the past in the light of new knowledge, and therefore seeing the past slightly differently. And I wanted Toby to be a totally mysterious character, as he has to be, because uh, a lot of this book, the narrative thread in the book, is finding out the truth about Toby. And even at the end, you're, you're not absolutely sure. You've, you, you know more, but you don't know everything, even at the end. Why does... I mean, the one, the one person who knows what happened to Toby because he was there is Kit Neville. And why I may or may not be telling the truth, the entire truth, yes. Because he has his own agenda with, with yes, Toby as well. Yeah. That everybody has a prickly, difficult relationship with everybody else in the book. Yeah, I, I don't, know that, don't know that Toby does particularly. I think Toby was probably... I don't know, perhaps, perhaps he does. Yeah, has a pretty tricky relationship with his sister. He does, he certainly does, yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And uh, why does Kit Neville hold on to the truth for, for so long? Why is he so reluctant to talk, to tell anybody uh, about what really happened to Toby? Why doesn't, why doesn't he tell? I think he's ashamed. Uh, he's ashamed of the part he played in Toby's death. And, uh, of course, there is the question of, is he telling the truth? Is he more deeply ashamed than it seems he has need to be because the part he played was... Um, uh, slightly more active, <laughs> mm. um, and it may have been, it may have been, and he may himself not by the end not know, but the painting he does, uh, which Paul looks at right at the end of Toby's death, uh, is telling a different story 
slightly from the story he has told Paul the previous evening. And is that artist's license? Is the painting true? Is the account he gives true? Yeah. And how much can we really know about what's true of any war unless we're actually there? Yeah, I, I think. I th well, I think also in fiction. I think uh, one of the things you ha you, know, you want the right that you want your readers to know the people and care about them. But it's it's just the truth about life that we are all in the end opaque to each other. Even the people we know and love intimately, there is an opacity about other people. And uh, I think it's important to honour and respect that in fiction. I mean, there is a, I mean, I'm not going to tell you what, how, how, I mean, we know very early in the book that Toby's dead, and we're dealing, uh, the book deals a lot with how the family copes with the loss, uh, and especially the sister, Eleanor. Uh, I won't tell you how Toby is supposed to have died in the book, but it comes as a surprise. You think you know, at several points in the book, you think you know what must have happened to Toby, but you don't know what. And even at the end of the book, you say, as Pat says, you still don't know what's happened to Toby. Uh, but let's talk a bit about Eleanor, because she thinks, even though she's lost her brother, she seems to think that the war's got nothing to do with her, that it's completely, because she's a woman, partly, yes, but it's not her concern. Yeah, I, I think she's modelled, uh, in this one respect, but not in any other, she's modelled slightly on Virginia Woolf, uh, who made the point that uh, no, no woman... Um, it's an interesting point of view. Uh, there was a massacre in the 20s in India, the Amritsar massacre. And somebody asked um, Virginia Woolf, did she not feel guilty about the actions of British soldiers in, in massacring a largely unarmed crowd? And she said, uh, should I feel guilty? Were there any ladies involved? <laughs> You choose what, what you emphasise. She chose to emphasise gender rather than nationality. So she did genuinely believe that as a woman, who uh, in a time when women had no part to play in the political system, they didn't vote, they hadn't elected the people who went to war, uh, she said, uh, it's nothing to do with me. Uh, easily said, of course, not so easily said, if you've got a son or a husband or a brother at the front. She hadn't. And uh, Eleanor is also an artist, and she's, although she insists that the war has nothing to do with her, and actually Virginia Woolf appears as a very minor character yeah, in this does, book as yes. well, um, she paints these, lands these landscapes from her childhood all the way through the war, in which her brother is a kind of fleeting, ghostly presence in all of them. Mm. Why, why does that happen in the book? Well, I think, I th I think it's, uh, it's the, the absolute impossibility of, uh, of her position, the position of ignoring a, t a total war, which is transforming the lives of everybody in, in the country. And in the end, she paints the absence of her brother as a shadowy figure. It might be him, it might not be him. And uh, she is painting, actually, one of the archetypal figures of the, of the whole 20th century, the man who should have been sitting at the dining room table uh, on Christmas Day and isn't there. And th these men, it, both in the First World War and in the Second World War, their numbers grew throughout the century. And somehow, as the century drew to its close, those absences, instead of being less noticeable, became more noticeable, which is why I think there was a, an upsurge of interest uh, in uh, the First World War in particular, in the closing years of the last century. It was, the, it was this ache of absence uh, which... Almost all families 
felt in one way or another. But the interesting thing to me is that in painting this absence, she is doing just as much wall painting as uh, Paul, who paints the landscapes around Yeep. Mm. It's, uh, she has, without quite realizing it, given in. Mm. I went back to uh, Sarajevo in April this year because it was the 20th anniversary of the start of the war in Bosnia. And as a conceptual artist or a theatre director there, who's a friend of mine, and they commemorated the war in the start of the war in Sarajevo mm. by performing a concert in the centre of the city, an open air concert, and they performed it to 11,541 empty chairs. Um. And these empty chairs went in, in, in rows of 20 or 25 all the way up the main drag of the city, what we used to call Sniper Rally. And there were little red plastic chairs all the way up and the, for about half a mile. And it was the most dramatic and poignant thing because you saw the absence. Yes, you can't yes, normally yeah. see absence, but you saw the absence and you saw little children who weren't even born at the time coming with bunches of flowers and choosing a chair to represent the uncle or the father, not the father obviously, but the uncle or the grandfather. Mm who they never knew. And, and that was the way they chose at a distance of 20 years. I think, that's, I think that is a marvellous way of doing it. But of course the tragedy is that in the First World War there would have been no venue anywhere near big enough uh, to, to, to commemorate the absence. But it is, in, in, it is what Eleanor is doing in these paintings. She is, it? yes, she is. She's commemorating his absence. Um, and I, I'm quite interested in the way people find ways around this ban on showing deformity. And, of course, what Paul does is to paint the landscape around Yeep, the, you know, the, the dead trees, the shell holes, the obliterated countryside. And that can actually be made to stand in for the dead or dismembered body. And I think he understands that this is exactly what he's doing. And Henry Tonks, in spite of painting these fantastic portraits of facially mutilated soldiers, he himself said that he thought the truth about the First World War could only be told in landscape. Let's see if we can get um, uh, some questions from... The, can we have the house lights up? So we can see, yes, there are. The, we've got... Roby Michael, there's one down here. Is this one from this side as well? Please catch my eye at any time. Yes, there's, there's one here. Yes. Hello. Um, I've just, literally just finished uh, rereading Regeneration Trilogy as if it were one long novel. And I'm very interested in the fact that, uh, having written Life Class, you're now revisiting the characters in there. And I wondered, is it something that you think about before you start writing the first book, that you're going to be so fascinated by your characters, whether they're fictional or factual, that you have to revisit them? Or is it something that kind of grows out of when you finish, you, you, you just can't quite let them go? Uh, well, it's, I think with Regeneration, it was more that I, I couldn't write the final chapter because, in fact, it isn't finished. Siegfried soon still doesn't believe in the war, but he's going back to fight it. Uh, Rivers has to go on treating patients, but his own views on the war have radically changed. And Billy Pryor is very discontented because he's been given home service, which in his mind excludes him from joining the club to end all clubs, the club of those who fought on the Western Front. So none of these characters has reached a position of rest so having written the final chapter about 17 times with a sense of closure, I thought, oh dear me, no, it, it, there's got to be more. And uh, at that point, it became three books. It was never two books. It was one, and then it was three. This one, um, well, I, I read that there was going to be another trilogy, 
in the papers. <laughs> Many times. <laughs> and, and, and I, you know, I, to put it mildly, I wasn't keen on the idea. <laughs> but uh, it, it's, it, at the end, you have a sense. It's not whether you like the characters or whether you... It's the sense of, do the characters have any go left in them? Um, well, I think uh, Kit Neville, for example, I think has a lot of go left in him, even at the end of the second book. Uh, but I, it's, it's, if I'm going to use them again, uh, I think I probably will, but I will fast forward at least 20 years so that we will meet them again in middle aged. All, 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 you know, all these people in their 40s moaning on about how, how old they are. I'll enjoy writing about that, I'm sure. <laughs> And, the, and if you move on 20 years, you're in the Second World War. Yes, indeed, yes. And I'm fascinated by this generation in the Second World War. There's a, a, a phrase of Elizabeth Bowen's where she said uh, she was, uh, the, um, this heroine, Stella, is saying that she is a, aware of herself as a member of a particular generation, and she calls it the generation that dropped the catch, that you know, in the middle of the Second World War, with more young men dying, that there's a sense of failure in that generation, that they should have sorted this out once and for all, and somehow they didn't. But of course, there's absolutely no reason why they should have felt any sense of failure, because it was their parents' generation, or grandparents' generation even, uh, that took all the decisions. They just went to the front and carried the can for it. But if you think about that generation that was born in the 1880s, yes. there, say you were born in 1885, mm. your youth was blighted by the First World War, and just as you were getting to a time in your life when you think you might be entitled to enjoy some mm. of the accomplishments of life, yeah. whack, the Second World War kicks yeah. in. Yeah. And, and that was... And in between, you had Spanish flu and encephalitis lethargica. Mm. And yeah, we think we've got problems. <laughs> we've got a question up here. So who's got the microphone? Hi. Yes. Uh, I was wondering, are there particular challenges attached to writing about real people? And is it possible to do enough research about them that you feel confident bringing them to life? Or do you have to ultimately fictionalize them? Um, I tend to, uh, well, I don't know whether it's a choice, but uh, William Rivers, his biographer, for example, uh, said that um, uh, uh, writing about Rivers was like writing about a ninth century saint. That's how much personal uh, uh, material he'd left behind him. He burnt everything. Uh, very, very little is known about Rivers as a private person. Um, about Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon, well, a bit too much is known about them. I wasn't actually all that comfortable writing about them, uh, but I wrote about them as poets, as people wrestling together with language, and I didn't do very much at all about their private lives. Um, so, I, actually, I, I'm not sure that I do delve particularly deeply. I certainly don't follow them through the bedroom door, ever. Um, and you always have the fictional characters with whom you're doing slightly different things. And in a very mysterious way, the real characters and the fictional characters seem to draw energy from each other uh, because you can use the fictional character as a contrast to bring out something in the historical character which you mightn't be able to bring out in any other way. And then the characters who are purely fictional in this book, they're sort of 
they borrowed from real characters, that extraordinary they generation are, of the they, Slade, they, yeah, Paul yeah. Nash and they, Dora they, Carrington. Yes, they, they sort of set off, but actually, as, as soon as they, uh, something happens to them that didn't happen to their real-life contemporary, or it does happen, but they take a different decision, yeah. immediately they become pure fiction, mm. and they set off into a sort of alternative universe. Because Paul, in your book, Paul Tarrant, is, is sort of Paul Nash, but he also isn't really Paul Nash. Yes, that's right, yes, yes. yes. Let's, we've got a question here, yes. How, how did you res, um, research the problem of facial injuries in the First World War? I went to... Um, uh, there's a, a perfectly preserved, complete archive, uh, which there isn't, for example, at Craig Lockhart. There's no archive of patients' material. But for some reason, the, 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 the Gillies archive at Sidcup survived intact. So every case history is there, every photograph of every patient, every pen and ink drawing from every uh, operation, uh, and quite very, very detailed accounts of how, you know, how they did a nose job in those days, starting from absolutely nothing, uh, how they brought flesh up from various other parts of the body uh, and attached the pedicles to the face so that then they could harvest the flesh and it wouldn't be rejected. So it was easy. I went and sat in a rather dark and gloomy little basement at Sidcup. You know, some, some writers go to Venice to do their research. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just read through this catalogue of absolute horrors, actually. Um, and, you know, an awful lot of it is now online. The same archive is now at the Royal College of Surgeons, which is a bit of an easier place to sit around in, but I do no longer need to do it, of course. Did, did you find out what happened? I mean, a thousand beds. Somebody's phone went off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A thousand beds, that's a lot, a lot of men coming through. Did you find out what, how, how did they manage to reintegrate? How did, did they manage to build normal lives after the war? Uh, some of them did. Um, uh, the rank organisation, believe it or not, a plan, uh, used to employ them as cinema projectionists which I suppose meant that they, they could work, but they were, uh, and it also contributed heavily to the hospital. Um, some people never left the hospital. They remained there as porters and attendants of various kinds. One man became the chauffeur of Gillies, the, the surgeon. Um, you know, some people, and there were marriages even between uh, some of the patients and some of the nurses. Um, the one particular guy who had a really good, successful operation because they repaired his cheek and he was left uh, with a slightly quizzical smile. You know, quite, you know quite, he looked quite charming, really. But in spite of that, his girlfriend dumped him. Uh, when he went back and tried to get his old job back, he was a tailor, uh, he was told that he couldn't deal with customers. He could cut cloth at the back, but he mustn't speak to the gentleman because it would upset them. Uh, same story, you see, exactly. Same story, and, my friend. Uh, uh, and for, yeah. he was obviously had something about him because he went to Australia. Uh, he set up his own tailoring business. He married a much nicer girl, and he, he came back to his hometown in triumph. But he never in his life managed to chew any solid food at all. Uh, they hadn't repaired it as well as that, so he was on liquids for the rest of his life. We got a question up. Who's got the microphone? I kind of lost track of it. Oh yes. Yes. Um, last week, I went to hear Peter England um, speaking about. Can you his work. speak more directly into? Sorry, the I went to hear Peter England um, speaking about his work with um, twenty um, people who'd lived through the war in different, the, the first war in different guises, and one of the points there was that 
um, younger people now know a lot about the Second War, but as the First War recedes further into the past, um, certainly in Sweden, where he came from, and in Germany, where he works, there is not a lot of knowledge among younger people about the First War. Um, would you think that that is going to recede further um, in people's um, recollection? Uh, I, think, no. I, I think partly, of course, uh, that the, many of our cultural uh, understanding of the 20th century comes via America. And for America, it was a, a war that lasted one year, and it took place in a very distant place. So it is, it, it is nothing like the shock value in America that it had in this country. Um, you have to ask yourself, why do uh, young people respond to the war poets? And they do, actually. And I think they respond to them because they see uh, young people uh, only a few years older themselves, sometimes not older at all, sometimes exactly the same age as themselves, uh, facing experiences which seem to them unimaginable. Uh, and I, I don't think it is, you know, people thought that when the last of the veterans went, uh, interest would die down. And I don't think it's true because I think the essence of the First World War experience in art and literature is this young, idealistic, innocent generation stumbling onto those battlefields and being shocked, shocked out of their minds. And I think that is something, if it's correctly taught, this is something that young people do still very powerfully respond to. The, you're very struck, aren't you, by the extreme youth of most of the men who fought in the trenches? Mm. Well, I got, my stepfather was there at uh, age 15. 15? 15. 15. And he was gassed. But, I mean, a lot of people were there at 14 or 15. They just lied. And big, strong lad, you know, waved him through. I mean, right at the beginning, it was thought by a lot of people that the volunteers would, in fact, uh, be doing things at home so that the professional soldiers, the army, could go and sort it out. And, uh, of course, that's not what happened. But it might have been uh, a reason why uh, rec uh, recruiting sergeants were prepared to let people through. Yeah, go on, let the lad have a bit of adventure on Salisbury Plain. Won't do him any harm. <laughs> I'm struck myself as, you know, having been, having been witnessed quite a lot of war, I'm very interested in what it is that attracts the young, and young men in particular, to war. Because for a lot of young men, they simply don't want to be left out of it. They know the, rationally, they know the mortal risks, they know the risks of being injured and so on, but they dread that the thing will go past and they won't have done their bit. And I think that's true today even I think as it was in there. First World War. I think that's true today, yes, I do. I think there, and I think there is, um, I think there is a pleasure in fighting, perhaps particularly for very young men, uh, but you know, the, the sort of, the sort of fighting that they're talking about is squaring up to somebody uh, on a Friday night, you know, and uh, it is nothing to do with the reality of flesh against mm. machine guns. Mm where there is, I'm sure, absolutely no pleasure in the reality of that. I can't remember which writer it was who said, no writers like writing, they like having written. And oh, no, I like writing. Now, I used to like having written, uh, but now I think everything else except the actual enjoyment of doing it is pretty good rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> but I say that because, I mean, I, I know that when I first started going to war as a journalist, I... 
used to say, I don't, like, I don't want to go to this war, but I want to have gone. I want to have seen it. I want to have been there to know for myself. So I think there's something of the soldier's motivation there too, that they want not to have been left out. Yes, and of course, uh, it's very true that um, the equivalent of Owen and Sassoon in our day has been the war correspondent. You know, I counted them out and I counted them back in. Uh, wars are articulated not by soldiers but by war correspondents now and, and, and not painted but photographed by war photographers. So in a sense they become the heroes and the soldiers with one or two exceptions are faceless. What do you um, think about them? I mean, I'm not going to ask you for your opinions on our contemporary wars, but you're so good at this. You're so good at getting under the skin of people who have experienced war. Have you thought about turning your fictional energies to uh, a contemporary story? I've, I've, it's been suggested to me that you know, I should write about Iraq, but uh, I think I would find it very difficult to write about a contemporary war from one side only. And, and when I think about the level of research that would be needed to write about it from the Iraqi side, um, no, I, I, I must admit I am daunted by that. And why wouldn't you write it from one side only? Um, I don't know. I don't know what the difference is. I don't know why I find it possible to uh, write about the First World War with minimal involvement from the German side. Though I, I do, you know, I do know about it, obviously. Um, but no, I, I couldn't write about Iraq just from the point of view of the invading forces. And is there, I mean, you've read in the paper so there's going to be a third novel. <laughs> well, yes, I believe. <laughs> is there, are you working on it already? Uh, I've, got, I've got a couple of chapters, yes. Uh, yes, I have. I'm, uh, uh, I've got quite, I don't know whether she'll be in the finished book, if there's going to be a finished book. But I've got interested in um, the woman who was the last woman in England to be tried for witchcraft. Uh, the woman who revealed that a warship had gone down at a time when it was um, still a state secret. And uh, the story is that one, that one of the drowned sailors appeared at one of her seances and said goodbye to his mother. And she was charged with witchcraft. This is what year? 1944. 1944, the last, witchcraft. The last trial of a witch in Britain. Well, you've got to write that novel. <laughs> I will be first in the queue <laughs> at Waterstones to buy that novel. I've got to wind it up there. Thank you to all of you for coming and making this event what it is. Thank you to the book press. Most of all, thank you to Pat. Come and get this if you haven't already. Pat will be signing copies in the tent next door. Out here, turn left. Thank you very much.